This is Ross Coulthard, and you are listening to That UFO Podcast. That UFO Podcast is powered by Zencaster. Zencaster is one of the world's leading platforms for recording and hosting podcasts. The open beta strives to put the power of studio-quality remote video production into the hands of anyone with a story to tell. Features include HD video recording, studio-quality sound, chat and footnotes. All running right from your browser so you can record from anywhere without ever installing anything. Check out the links in the show description to find out more. Hi everyone and welcome back to That UFO Podcast. My name is Andy and on a very cold winter's morning I am joined by my guest out in the sunny the sunny warms of Australia even. Um, he is a teacher, writer, researcher and federal parliamentary public servant. He has worked and studied at Charles Stewart University, the University of Canberra and the Australian National University all in Canberra. Um, he was the principal researcher and narrator for the excellent documentary on the Westall incident, Westall 66, a suburban UFO mystery which was first broadcast on the Australian Sci-Fi Channel in 2010. I'd like to welcome Shane Ryan to the podcast. Hello, Andy. It's great to see you and to chat to you in person after all this yes. time. And it's a real pleasure to, to join our two wonderful accents together and talk about the crazy subject of UFOs. So thank yes. you for the, for the privilege of being on your no, podcast. No, thank you. Um, you've been a very popular guest. As soon as I put out that you were coming on, um, many listeners know uh, a lot about Westall and what happened, and probably just as many aren't too familiar with it. So it's a really good time to dive into this, I think, especially uh, as the aerial school phenomenon documentary received such wide praise that came out a few months ago. And I think there's a lot of echoes of that in, in the Westall incident as well. Um, what I'd love to do, Shane, is to hand over to yourself and just ask you, first off, for those who are unfamiliar with Westall, what is it all about? Well, that's a really good question. What is it all about and what was it all about? And after all these years of investigating this really interesting story, a story that I often describe as certainly Australia's and possibly the world's largest mass witness daylight, mass witness uh, UFO sighting, and not just a UFO sighting of one to three flying saucer-shaped craft in the air, but at least one, possibly more of these craft coming down and being witnessed either on the ground or very close to the ground. And then in addition to that, not just the matter of these objects being seen by so many people, and it was literally hundreds of people, uh, school students, of course, mainly high school and primary school students, but also some teachers and some local residents and workers. But in addition to that, whatever it was that was behind these strange objects and behind this incident, there was a huge response to it, a response to it by government, different levels of government, local, state, and federal government authorities in terms of the military, emergency services, police, all responded on this day to what so many of these people saw this April day in Melbourne. And it happened uh, in a place about 21 kilometres from the central, bis uh, central business district of Melbourne. 
And it was a community, uh, a neighbourhood that was called Westall, which was within the larger suburb of Clayton South. And this part of Melbourne at that time, back in 1966, was very much still on the urban fringe of Melbourne. It was semi-urban and semi-rural. So the suburbs were beginning to encroach on what had been up until that point uh, very much uh, agricultural land, farming land. And there was still a lot of farming going on, mainly market gardens, so the growing of vegetables and flowers and, and some fruit. And so it was really this place on the edge of Melbourne and in a way, a very ordinary place, very ordinary people, very down-to-earth people uh, going about their lives uh, when on this day, which happened to be the second last day of term for schools in Victoria, something literally out of the blue appeared in the skies above two schools. And I emphasise the two schools because sometimes it gets lost in uh, in translation, if you like. There were actually two school communities involved. One, a high school, Westall High School, and then neighbouring that on the same property but adjacent to the school, a primary school that was known as Westall State School. And so two communities, two separate school communities, but together on one parcel of land. And they were both very much involved in the sighting that happened that day. And it wasn't just the children, obviously, that reported seeing flying saucers at the time. There was the teachers also witnessed this too, yeah. That's right. So uh, in addition to the school students, uh, of course, there were a lot of teachers there on this day. There weren't that many teachers that we're aware of that were primary witnesses. I know of only two from the high school. One was one of the two science teachers at the high school, a man called Andrew Greenwood. And the other teacher was a physical education teacher. And she was a New Zealand lady who we think was one of the possibly two PE teachers that were out on the school oval at the time supervising and running the two PE classes that were happening. There were, of course, teachers at the neighbouring primary school. And uh, I know certainly of one of those teachers that was a witness of sorts, uh, mostly a witness to the aftermath of the UFOs appearing and the effect that it had on the students, but also some of the physical uh, aftermath that apparently at least one of these UFOs left uh, on the sports ground or near the sports ground at the primary school. I've actually, just to make it a little bit easier for people, because sometimes rather than just talk, listening to the investigator, the researcher, somebody like myself talking about what I've learnt or what I've heard, I've actually prepared some small uh, vignettes, if you like, uh, bits of the story that have been provided to me over the years by the people who were actually there. And it might make more sense to your listeners and to your viewers if I share some of those, if, yeah, if you're please. ready for me to do that. So um, I've been researching this story since 2005, and I originally set up a Yahoo Groups website. This is way back in the days before social media like Facebook took over, when Yahoo Groups was still a thing. 
And I myself at that point in time was dabbling with the internet and trying to work it all out myself. And so I set up this Yahoo Groups website just to put the feelers out there in cyberspace to see if anyone remembered this story. Um, I guess I was going through a little bit of a, a midlife crisis myself, an early midlife crisis, of course. And um, I, I thought I should probably write a book, a book for, for children, for young adults. And completely out of the blue, even to this day, I really don't know where the idea came from. But I remembered this old flying saucer story that I'd heard myself when I had lived in Melbourne many years before, when I moved from country Victoria down to Melbourne to study at university. And I boarded with a lady who had, over the years, um, had one or two students, international and domestic students, stay with her while they were going to university. And I turned out to be one of those. And she is the lady who originally told me about this story because she had two friends whose son had been at Westall State School, the primary school, that day and had been a witness. And he'd come home, he told his parents the story, and over time, uh, the lady I lived with, her friends had told her the story. And there's another connection to that witness and to that lady and to her mother, who herself had an experience around the same time, which I can come back to later if you like. But that's how I initially came across the story all those years ago. And after I set up the Yahoo Groups website, a couple of local newspapers also picked up on my interest in the story. And between those two um, articles going out into local newspapers and the Yahoo Groups website reaching out to people, people started to contact me. And first it was one or two or three people. And I'd talk to them over the phone and they would give me names about other people that I they thought I should talk to. And so the number sort of grew slowly and then more quickly over the months and years. And before I knew it, I had this substantial number of witnesses, primary witnesses mostly, who had seen the flying saucers and some of them had seen the traces left behind by these flying saucers and some of them were lucky enough to have seen both of those things, that it dawned on me eventually that uh, this wasn't an urban myth. It wasn't just a story that had grown legs over the years and snowballed, that there were very definite common elements, common denominators to the story that people were telling me. And I realised then that perhaps I needed to shift my focus from thinking about writing a book of fiction based on a true story like this story for kids and try to do something for those kids that were now adults and try to get the bottom to the bottom of the story and try to find an answer for these people. And I think at the time I was naive enough to think that I could probably crack this this nut, the the nub of this mystery, whatever it was within 18 months or two years, that whatever it was that was behind what these people say they saw and experienced, surely I'd be able to find out what the answer was, that I'd be able to find some sort of explanation, whether it was prosaic or not so prosaic or something in between. And 56 years later, I'm sitting at this desk in my study in my house in Canberra 
and I'm still on that same journey. And I guess that has a lot in common with lots of other classic UFO cases around the world. If you think about cases like Rendlesham or Roswell or whatever it might be, the people who have tried to crack those nuts, if you like, and, and find the answers are still on that journey. Can I just ask one question before we, we get into some of those kind of snippets from, from the witnesses? We're talking about the 60s in Australian history. What was that era like in Australia? We've got the Cold War happening between the USA and the USSR. Um, how had that affected the population? And, and what was the kind of zeitgeist within Australia? Do you know? I think that's a really interesting part of the whole story. And I often say to people, you know, beyond the the really exotic elements of this story, beyond what it really was that people saw at Westall that day. And as I often say to people, I don't have a particular agenda that I'm aware of. I don't have a particular barrow that I'm pushing. It doesn't really matter to me what the ultimate answer is as to what people saw. Um, I'm just after the answer. But beyond that and surrounding that, of course, you have, in a way, just as important as the UFOs themselves, you have the other characters in the story. And the other characters aren't the things up in the sky. The other characters are the human beings, the people. These literally hundreds of people that were involved this day and and over subsequent days because there were other sightings over subsequent days around Westall as well. And and it's something that's affected these people for for decades, for all their all their lives. And I've become part of that story if you like i've become entwined in that part of their lives and so getting a feel for what it was like on the ground in melbourne australia's second largest city at that time in 1966 has been important for me i wasn't born until the following year 1967 so i wasn't quite part of that era but you know the olympics had happened in melbourne just 10 years before 1956 and so it was a real time for Australia, if you like, coming out of the dark days of the Second World War, coming out of the the terrible time that that was for so many people, so many people going to war and losing their lives or being injured, families being affected, the Australian economy being affected. And after the war finished, Australia's population began to grow really quite quickly. A lot of post-war immigration coming, of course, from the United Kingdom but other parts of Europe, uh, Southern Europe in particular, places like Italy and Greece and Yugoslavia and Malta and Albania. And that changed Australian society and it changed it quite quickly. So there was a real excitement, I think, in Australia in the 1960s. Lots of things were changing in terms of social mores, sexual mores, the breakdown eventually of... uh, of more sort of authoritarian structures. Things were beginning to happen within the political world within Australia as well, changes in in government in terms of political parties. But also at the same time, of course, you had the beginnings of the Vietnam War. And in Australia, we had conscription introduced uh, for the Vietnam War. And so at around this time, you had the beginnings of Australian troops beginning to go over to Vietnam. You had the lottery system coming out 
when numbers were being drawn out of a barrel and if your number came up, you were conscripted into the Australian military and could possibly see service in this faraway country that wasn't so far away geographically from Australia, but culturally and socially it was so different and most Australians had no experience of that part of the world and probably really had no idea what the war was all about. Um, so you had all of that part of the part of the milieu. But in terms of the school settings at that time in Australia, you know, schools were still pretty authoritarian. Teachers, headmasters ruled with a pretty strong fist, if you like. And that becomes really relevant to the story at Westall because the rules were well known at Westall. The headmaster at the time of the high school, at least, Mr. Frank Sambleby, was quite a, a taskmaster. He was uh, generally fairly feared by his charges, charges the, the kids, which was pretty common in schools at the time. And the idea of going against the wishes of your teachers or the school rules and jumping fences and running across roads and running through market gardens and chasing after these flying saucers in the air and trying to follow them and trying to go to the place where you had seen them come down and land, well, to do such a thing, of course, was completely anathema at that time. But dozens, possibly more than dozens, maybe a hundred or so, kids did exactly that. So that just gives us a little insight into the effect that this incident had on the kids who were there that day. And that leads me into a, a little story that one of the kids shared with me in recent years. And I've given each of these little stories just a very quick title. And this is from a, a girl called Patsy, who was in Form 2, the second year of secondary school. So she was about 13 or 14 years old. And she said to me, Shane, it started with a commotion. I would like to give you my recollection of the events on the day of the Westall UFO sighting. It began with a lot of commotion in the corridor with students running from classroom to classroom yelling, flying saucers, flying saucers. I hurried along with everyone else to the sports oval and sure enough, there were UFOs. Silver, circular, domed shape, not like anything I'd ever seen before, hovering above us. If memory serves me correct, there was also a dull humming sound. I recall the UFO made a sudden movement. I screamed because I thought it was going to swoop, but it just tilted, sped off at great speed, and disappeared in the direction of several aircraft in the sky. The aircraft appeared to be following the UFOs until they also disappeared. My friends and I were curious about the UFO landing in the Grange. The Grange was this area, an old farmland, a couple of hundred uh, metres south of the school property. So Patsy goes on to say that we ventured to the clearing at the Grange to find circular patches of flattened grass. Later that day, we were called to a general assembly to be told not to talk to the media about the sighting. Some students ignored the principal's warning and spoke to the media. Men arrived at our school in fatigues. Couldn't tell you what part of the Australian Defence Force they were from, 
but they were in fatigues. Hundreds of us had witnessed an awesome event, a UFO sighting. To this day, no one can convince me otherwise. I know what I saw. I have had a UFO encounter. Another girl by the name of Phyllis, who was a year older, was in Form 3. So she was about 15 years old. And she gave me uh, a little bit of a story from a different vantage point. Everyone was standing in a slightly different place at a slightly different time. And all the kids and all the witnesses were slightly different people. So different personalities, different ages. And so, of course, the accounts vary a little bit in some of the detail. And I guess it's been my job over the years as the researcher to try to put all of those pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together to make a, a more coherent story. Not to gloss over differences, not to ignore differences, uh, but just to get a, a clearer, easier handle on what it might have been that actually happened that day. And Phyllis wrote that one UFO appeared above me and another two further over at the other end of the oval. They all looked the same, silver in colour, dish-shaped with a dome top. They hovered above for what seemed like a couple of minutes, then tilted and sped off at extraordinary speed and disappeared over the pine trees at the Grange. After school, myself and another uh, group of local kids ran to the Grange and witnessed three flattened circular spots, all singed around the outer edge in the paddocks. How do you tell 15-year-olds they did not see anything or what they saw were weather balloons? We know what we saw and will never forget the profound effect it had on us, on all of us. So these are kids writing to me over the years, mostly by email, um, mostly kids who had had no contact with each other since this day, and giving me their honest accounts. And I remember when I first started contacting people, and it was mostly by telephone, and I would speak to these witnesses, and sometimes there was a little bit of a hesitancy when I was starting up the conversation because a lot of these adults, but as kids, had been told in very no uncertain terms, this was a story that was not to be talked about. Mm. This was a story that a lid was meant to be kept on. They were told this, many of them, not all, but many of them, quite directly. And even for those who tried to talk about it later on, perhaps when they were a bit older and married and had families of their own, spouses of their own, were going out into the workforce and had workmates, uh, sometimes they'd be met with just ridicule sometimes or just people not wanting to accept what they were saying at face value, that they couldn't accept it at face value. And they learnt very quickly to keep the story to themselves. And so when I contacted them, quite a lot of them would say to me, Shane, is it okay for me to talk about this now? Because we were told that it wasn't. Or I tried to talk about it and just nobody wanted to know. But I said to them, I want to know. Just tell me. And I'm not here to make a judgment. I'm not here to make a buck out of it. I'm not here to prove one thing one way or the other. I just want to hear your story. And they would tell me their story. 
I'm going to be completely honest and admit that I do love a bit of cool technology, but not all the best tech is classified. So when Blendjet got in touch about their new Blendjet 2.0, I was very excited to try it out, especially as one of those protein shake people that many folks hate. Just shaking never has the same results as a blender does, let's be fair. Blendjet 2 is portable, so you can blend up a smoothie at work, a protein shake at the gym, or even a margarita on the beach. It's small enough to fit in a cup holder, but powerful enough to blast through tough ingredients like ice and frozen fruit with ease. Blendjet 2 is whisper quiet, so you can make your morning smoothie without waking up the whole house, a big one for me folks, and it lasts for 15 or more blends, and recharges quickly via USB-C. Best of all, Blendjet 2 cleans itself, just blend with water. Water, a drop of soap and you're good to go. With over 30 colours available, there is something for everyone. Personally, I'm a huge fan of the carbon fibre. What are you waiting for? Go to blendjet.com and grab yours today and be sure to use the promo code THATUFO12 to get 12% off your order and free two-day shipping. No other portable blender on the market comes close to the quality, power and innovation of the Blendjet 2. They guarantee you'll love it or your money back. Blend anytime, anywhere with the Blendjet 2 Portable Blender. Go to blendjet.com and use the code THATUFO12 to get 12% off, remember folks, and that free two-day shipping. Shop today and get the best deal ever. In, in watching the documentary, uh, that comes across the, the kind of fear that's put into the children and the teachers in the immediate aftermath of the event. And you, as you say, the, the military who turned up that weren't easily identifiable um i believe within the documentary you're told that you know there shouldn't have been any military on that scale available at such short notice to just appear when they did too so clearly you know something was going on that they wanted to cover up at any means necessary at the time were ufos seen as a bit of a a no-no was it a you know just pure fancy as a conversation what was the culture in Australia around UFOs in the mid-60s? I think the culture probably wasn't that different from the culture in the United Kingdom or most other English-speaking countries. I'm not sure about other non-English-speaking countries, but it probably wasn't vastly different. I mean, Australian society in the mid-60s was still pretty British in many ways. I mean, chunks of it were Irish as well, of course. Mm -hmm. A lot of Irish immigration to Australia including in my own family, um, but very uh, Anglo-Celtic culture. Uh, the beginning of multiculturalism culturism was happening at this time, really from the, the 60s onwards. But I think, you know, how people responded to the topic of UFOs probably varied a bit, of course, from family to family, person to person. But, you know, people were aware of um, science fiction, it was beginning to appear on TV, of course. Things like uh, you know Star Trek and Doctor Who, and and of course the movies and the comic books before that. So it wasn't something that was completely unknown to people. I think a better way of talking about it was it was something that was unexpected. Mm -hmm. It wasn't something that people expected to encounter for the most part in their daily lives. It wasn't something that people expected to encounter when they were just trying to go to school as a student or as a teacher or trying to go about their daily work as a market gardener or a factory hand or, or whatever people were doing. 
it was something that was, I guess it belonged to the cinema, it belonged to TV. And when it actually happened in real life to these people, I think it came as a great shock. For some, it was very exciting. For some, it was more traumatic. For many, it was something in between. The reason I often refer to it as the 1966 Westall flying saucer incident is because that was probably the more common parlance at the time in the 60s, flying saucer rather than UFO. And also, that's the expression that a lot of the witnesses used at the time and when I spoke to them. And and they used that partly because it was an expression that was already part of the culture. Sure. But it also, it matched in a way what people were seeing. When most of the witnesses describe what they saw at Westall, they describe it as being like two sources joined to, together at the lips at the edges or a, a bowl sitting on a saucer, um, something elliptical. And, mm-hmm. and maybe when it moved into a particular position, it had a more of an elongated sort of a, a cigar-shaped uh, form. But they refer to it as a flying saucer because that's what it looked like. And I like to use that word because that's come from them and because for me it captures also the, the sense of, of those years. But I'm glad you brought up, Andy, that sense of um, uh, authority that existed at that time in Australia. And um, you also brought up the notion of how people in Australia at that time would react to seeing something like this. How accepting Mm. would they be? And I have another account here of the, I call it what the caretakers saw. Westall High School, it had two caretakers, a married couple, and their job was to look after the the physical aspects of the school. They were gardeners, they were cleaners, they were maintenance people. And for years, I tried to track them down because their house was on the school property. And I thought, if anybody saw something that day, maybe they did. It took me years to find not them because they passed away, but some of their children. And this is what I wrote about that story. A few years ago, and after 11 years of looking at that time, I finally made contact with two of the children of the Westall High School caretakers, Mr. and Mrs. Sykes, George and Doris. They were both passed away at that point. Given that the Sykes family, parents and three children, Marilyn, Raylene and Kim, lived in a house on the property of the school, and that the two younger children were students at the Westall State School, I was very keen to know what the parents at least may have seen. And as it turns out, Mr. Sykes was a witness to the flying saucer, and he was adamant it was nothing ordinary. Noting that the Sykes house was and still is on the school property, and facing the main street that goes through Westall, the flying saucer uh, basically flew directly over their house, flying from north to south. Raylene, their daughter, who was 10 years old at the time, recalled that her dad was on the Oval at the time, as were a lot of the kids, and saw something very unusual that was not a plane. George went to the headmaster, Frank Sambleby, went to his office and told him what he had seen, and then was given the task to help lock down the school. 
He described the object as metallic and round, and that it had hovered for a few seconds, and that it had landed on, or at least hovered very low over, the back of the school oval, on the school property, on the other side of the oval, from there where their house was located, before it shot off very fast up into the sky. Police came to the school, and Raylene had some memory of aviation authorities coming to the school and examining the ground there. The story got shut down very quickly, and George was instructed not to talk about it. George was apparently something of a raconteur, and he always loved to tell a good story. But he instructed his family that this story was not to be talked about. His older daughter, Marilyn, who was 21 years old at the time, she remembers that attempts afterwards to get their parents to talk about what they had seen, what had happened, were never successful. Raylene recalled that Doris or George, mum or dad, had walked her and her brother Kim, who was nine years old at the time, home that afternoon from Westall State School, which they didn't normally do. And they did that to protect the kids from the media that had begun to gather outside the school property. And when Marilyn, oh, and also I must mention, Raylene also remembered that she heard that an ambulance had come to the school, to the high school that day as well, because at least one, possibly two of the students had fallen ill. But when Marilyn, the older daughter, 21 years old, arrived home later that evening from work, she had to negotiate her way through the media, the media pack outside the school property. And the headmaster, Frank Sambleby, actually came to dinner that night to their house. And he parked his car in their driveway, which was something he never did, as he always parked in the driveway over the fence on the school side, closer to his office. But on this occasion, he didn't want to be noticed by the media. After dinner, Marilyn recalled that George and Frank went outside to the Oval and that they were there for a very long time. Raylene remembered Frank as a very good man, uh, a lovely man, but that he was probably lent on by whoever it was that came to his office later in response to the incident. And the daughters regret that they didn't try more in their parents' later years to get them to talk again about what had transpired that day at Westall. You, you mentioned that ambulance with the two pupils potentially falling ill, one or two. Was there any assumption or presumption that they had fallen ill as in relation to the event itself, or was it something separate as far as you're aware? Well, the story that's been told to me by quite a few witnesses who remember, literally remember seeing the ambulance come to the school, to the high school, parking in the driveway, uh, they they link it directly to the flying saucer incident. And the story that's been told over the years, most particularly, there, there are two female students that have been mentioned to me over the years as being adversely affected by what they saw. And uh, um, two of them in particular needing medical aid and at least one of them being transported away by ambulance. Uh, there was a third girl that was named to me by other students as having been affected that day as well. I was able to trace her eventually and unfortunately, because she had had, as 
some teenagers did in those years electroconvulsive therapy for treatment for uh, mental disorders, as it would have been called in those days. Her memories up until that time had all virtually been wiped. And although she remembered being at Westall High School and had some memories of this flying saucer event, she had no specific memories of what happened to her that day. But there was another girl by the name of Tanya who was identified by name by several students as having been affected and having been taken away by ambulance. And uh, in more recent years, I've been able to contact Tanya. She's alive and, and she's well. And she tells an amazing story of, in her mind, being the first student on the Oval that morning who noticed the UFOs as they flew in. And she remembers running after them down to the Grange, chasing them, because so many of them had seen the flying saucers fly down to the Grange, descend behind the pine trees. They had a fair idea of where they had come down. But most students didn't get down there in time to see them or ended up going to a slightly different place. And Tanya doesn't remember being, remember seeing them on the ground. She says that she doesn't, she didn't see them, she didn't find them. Um, she has no memory of how she got back to the school. And although she doesn't have any memories herself specifically of being taken away in an ambulance, she's listened to the accounts of so many of the other students who were there that day that have a memory of that. And she concedes that it may have happened and that for some reason she doesn't have a memory of it anymore. And so I, as the researcher, just have to honour those different memories that don't quite concur and, yep. and just hold them somehow in balance and, and stay open to more information coming forward at some point that might clear things up for, for us. You also mentioned people being lent on at the time, including the head head teacher uh, Frank Simbleby. And I wonder, is there any reports of these being your standard police officers? Uh, military officials, obviously, were, were told they're in fatigues, but nothing more than that. And it's also difficult for teachers and, and children to identify, you know, where they are from in the military. But was there any reports of men in black type situations? You know, people turning up in suits questioning, speaking to, to various folks and then disappearing just as quickly? Well, it wouldn't be a real UFO story if there wasn't something like that, I reckon. Um, and who'd have thought even in Australia we would have something like Men in Black, but it sounds like that we, we did in relation to this. I mean, we certainly know that there was a military response of some sort to the school um, because so many of the witnesses remember seeing people in military uniforms and also police officers. And I, for years, tried to get a police officer who had let out to one of the witnesses that he knew what Westall was all about, but he would never admit to having been there that day. And eventually, not long before he passed away, he eventually admitted to being part of the police response to Westall that day, um, which just confirmed what other witnesses had said. And many of the kids, quite a few of the kids at Westall High School, actually in a few years after they left the high school, went on to become police officers themselves or had parents in the police force. And so they knew the police uniforms very well. 
and they could distinguish them from other similar blue colored uniforms and they knew that they oh those ones are probably air force they're definitely not police um, or they could identify them as being army and not police but and we know for example that the air force officers turned up at westall high school and wanted to interview the male science teacher andrew greenwood and the headmaster frank sambleby wouldn't take andrew out of class to meet with them and uh, and wouldn't allow the meeting to happen and frank sambleby complained about all these phone calls he was getting in the days the couple of days after the incident from the air force from ufo society people and and he found that very upsetting and, and irritating because his main role of course was as the headmaster to keep the school running and to protect the children and to protect the reputation of the school and that was very much his focus but the air force they were very keen on interviewing someone and we know that because andrew greenwood tells the story of a week or two later a knock coming on his door at his home and it was a high-ranking air force officer he knew he was relatively high-ranking because he had bands around his sleeve and next to him was another person in uh, civilian clothes, in a suit, but very much gave the air of being from the government. Short cropped hair, nice suit. And he thought they were coming around to take down more information about what he had seen, because his account had already appeared in the local newspaper. But they were coming around to do quite the opposite. And they came to say to him, we don't want you talking about this, Mr. Greenwood. There are no such things as UFOs. We don't want you talking about flying saucers. And if you continue doing this and give more interviews like you did to the local newspaper, we'll make sure that you don't teach again in this state. This was his first year of teaching. He was 20 years old. And he said to me, Shane, as clear as this memory of seeing this UFO, he remembers seeing one in the sky that day, this memory of these two goons, he referred to them as, coming around to his house and trying to pull the wool over his eyes was was very, very, very strong memory for him. And he remember saying to these two men who were older than he was, of course, so that was a bit intimidating and obviously from the government, he remember saying to them, well, look, if there are no such things as flying saucers, why do you care if I say that I've seen one? Because you say they don't exist. So what does it matter to you? And he remembers them not receiving that response from him very well (laughs) but it certainly shook him up and it shook him up and that's what has stayed with andrew over the years of course seeing the flying saucer was something that was important to him and something that was amazing for him but it's always stayed with him why did it have to be kept quiet why couldn't it be spoken about and we know that there were other people who went out to the houses and to the market gardens around westall in the days after the sighting. And these are the men in black, if you like. And who were they? Well, of course, I don't know. All I know is the descriptions that people have given to me, that they were men in suits. They gave the impression of being from the government and they all came with one message. And the message was, you're not to talk about this. And I have a very short story here. And I've I've called it, if these weatherboards could talk. In Australia, weatherboards refers to the weather, the um, timber cladding on 
homes in Australia on our traditional bungalow houses that were mostly made out of wood up until the 1960s. And the houses around Westall were very much from that era, built in the 50s and the 60s. And I wrote, within hours of the events of the 6th of April 1966, two men in suits walked to the front door of a particular house in Westall that was virtually directly opposite the front gates of Westall High School and spoke words to the man and woman living there, words that would ensure their silence for the rest of their lives. These men wore suits, not a uniform, but they didn't seem to be police detectives. They were from the authorities. That is all that is known. That, and they told the married couple, aged in their 40s, living there, that they were to never talk about the incident at Westall, ever. The couple's children, two of whom were already young adults in 1966, remember that any mention of the flying saucer by them at that time or later would cause their mum and dad to freeze and to become visibly frightened. Their parents flatly refused to talk about it. And they told their children that it was no use trying to talk to the other neighbours about it either, as no one would discuss it. Others in the street had been similarly visited and warned, including another older relative of this couple who lived nearby, who was a market gardener. And their father was no shrinking violet. He'd been a soldier and a railway guard, but seemingly promises had been extracted from these good, hard-working, down-to-earth people of Westall to keep a secret, a secret that the passing of decades could not dent. And the keeping of that secret would for years cause a reaction in a mother and a father that looking back on it now, their 83-year-old daughter still finds so perplexing. What words indeed were uttered on the veranda of that weatherboard house all those years ago and why? And for the 83-year-old daughter who told me this story, it was a very poignant story for her Of course, her parents had passed away, Um, but for her, she was also a witness herself to the flying saucer because she had been in the front garden of that house tending the roses when she saw this object fly in. She saw it fly in, she saw it come down, she saw it land, and after a, a short passage of time had passed, she saw it lift up silently without making any sound, causing any reverberations, causing any wind, lift up and fly away at great speed. And so that something that happened was in no doubt for her, she'd been a primary witness. And then she had to put up with this knowledge that people had come around and spooked her family, spooked her own mum and dad, and left this situation in which she could no longer talk to her mum and dad about what she had seen and what so many others at Westall had seen because her mother and father had been warned off. And even in the privacy of their home, the privacy of their family unit would not talk about it. And this idea of of something being able to be kept silent for so long was something that at the beginning I was a bit sceptical of. I, I thought, well, come on. You know, if something happened so long ago, even if you're told not to talk about it, surely after the passage of time, 
you would think it's okay to talk about it. But at around the same time, I was contacted by the daughter of one of the teachers at Westall State School, the primary school next door. And she had seen some media about the Westall incident that I had been involved in on TV. And she contacted me to say, Shane, my mum was one of the teachers at Westall State School that day. And we knew nothing about it. We did not know that my mother had been there that day and had been a witness. My mother kept silent about it all these years. And her mother only talked to the family about it after she had seen the Westall 66 documentary, the one that Rosie Jones made and aired on television in in 2010. So her mum had seen this at some point and she finally opened up about being there that day. She hadn't even talked to her husband about it. And she told the story of the kids rushing into her classroom from outside. The kids were on recess at the primary school talking about the flying saucers, the flying saucers. And she rushed outside. And even though she didn't see the object herself, she saw this huge area of flattened grass in a nearby paddock. It seemed to be bubbling somehow, seemed to be affected somehow by whatever had sat on top of it. She saw the effect it had had on all of the kids. The kids were, some of them were hysterical, some of them were frightened, some of them were anxious. And the next day, the entire teacher community at the school was spoken to by, again, two men in suits, not in uniform, from the government. She didn't know where they were from, but the two men said, this is to stay at Westall. You're not to talk about this. And if you do, you'll all be in danger of losing your employment. And she kept her silence all those years, not even telling her husband. Amazing. Hi everyone, Andy here with a special announcement just for you Spotify listeners. You can now finally subscribe to the podcast directly through Spotify. So many of you choose Spotify as your chosen platform and I really appreciate your patience. But now for the price of a coffee or even less depending where you get your coffees from, you can listen to episodes early advert free and with zero sponsorships added in also you'll get access to exclusive bonus content too so make sure you click and if you can subscribe and support the podcast thank you very much what for you has been because it sounds to me from what you've told there are some fascinating stories of of the aftermath of the incident where in the the weeks preceding or following the incident that there was still people being being shut up you know, they were they were being told in no uncertain terms this wasn't something they were ever going to discuss again. Did it then just fizzle out? Was that what was the legacy of this event? And how do people in Australia, in Westall particularly, view the incident now? I think the legacy, in a way, from from the perspective of whoever it was that wanted to keep what happened at Westall under wraps to keep what happened at Westall at Westall, the legacy for them was success because it did stay under wraps. It literally, it literally never got talked about. Once or twice it got written up in a UFO book. Um, great researchers like Bill Chalker and Keith Basterfield here in Australia uh, mention it in their writings. 
But in terms of it going into the public uh, marketplace and it being a story that was known about, that didn't happen. It really stayed under the carpet. And for the people who wanted that to be the case, they were successful. But um, it's now come out. It's coming out in drips and drabs, of course, in terms of the greater public marketplace. This whole still, you know, huge numbers of people in Australia who have never heard of the story, know nothing about the story. Um, for those people who, like us, have an interest in this subject area, people do know. But I think now it's become part of this growing and gradual acceptance by more and more people in the community that there is there is a reality there is something that people see that is to some extent inexplicable and i often put it in the um in a way in the category of those stories that over the years had to be not talked about and we think immediately of things like child sexual abuse cases it's something that for the most part as a society up until very recently we either didn't have a great awareness of or if we did it was something we didn't talk about and we didn't think about it we didn't want to think about it we didn't want to recognize it but in more recent years of course in australia other countries the um this um systematic and institutional child sexual abuse as well as child sexual abuse happening within families along with more generally domestic violence incidents is something that we talk about more now it's something that we are recognizing and grappling with but there were so many perhaps instances over the years where children perhaps came forward wanting to talk about these sorts of things terrible things that had happened to them and adults wouldn't believe them Adults wouldn't listen to them. And I think now we are more prepared to do that. Please, God, I, I think that's true. And and I think these UFO stories sort of fit into that category in a way, because in the past, people would try to talk about what they had seen and what had happened to them, and people didn't want to know. People didn't want to believe. And I think now we're more open to it. And I think we're more open to the to the mystery of it and that there's a truth to it and and finding out what lies behind it all is is a worthwhile thing to be engaged in and i haven't expressed myself very well but really the main thing i'm trying to say is that it's important to listen to people it's important not to judge people it's important not to prejudge people and to accept people's stories for what they are and even if they're stories that challenge our sense of what's possible or of what's true, and I think especially if it's those sort of stories, we need to listen to those. And particularly they're stories that come from a time when people were children and people were vulnerable. Um, and I'm very aware that, you know, I've been very fortunate to have had these, this experience of being in contact with so many of these Wester witnesses. I mean, I'm looking at my figures here on my cheat sheet. 
I've been in contact with 133 witnesses who were witnesses to the flying saucers and 187 I had to change it recently because I had another witness, 187 people who were witnesses to the circles or the trace marks left behind, and 75 lucky people who were witnesses to both. So we're talking about very large numbers of people. Um, And so I've been very lucky to have this contact with so many people. Um, And they've been telling me stories that have very much challenged my own ideas of what is true and what is possible and how the world works or is supposed to work. And uh, I think this experience has very much changed me as it's changed the witnesses as well. Shane, I know it's very late where you are and it's very early where I am. I'm just starting my day. If you've got a few minutes just to finish off with some listener questions, um, maybe a few things we've not managed to touch on in the body of the interview, we can get through them as quickly as we can. Um, A quick question from Gnosis. He asks, are you aware of any of the Westall witnesses having other sightings or experiences either prior to the event or later in their lives? For the most part, not really, although there's a couple of, there's one witness in particular who, his name was Victor, and he was the fellow who jumped the western boundary fence off the high school and walked up to one of the two flying saucers that was seen hovering above the paddock next to the school and went to put his hand out to touch one, drew his hand back because it was too warm, and then watched as the objects ascended and flew away. And uh, there are a couple of other witnesses, adult witnesses, in fact, who in part corroborate that scene from vantage points near where Victor was standing. But he tells the story of having seen an object very similar to the two objects he saw that day at the Grange a couple of years before. And in the days after Westall, I have several witnesses who from different vantage points around Westall from their homes or neighbouring streets saw the same object that was seen at Westall on the 6th of April in those days following. And so that's part of the story as well. But in terms of uh, um, ongoing experiences, um, not really. That's sort of the extent of it. But look, I'm very aware that there were 485 students at Westall High School that day, and I've been in contact with 224 of them. So I've been in contact with a lot, but I haven't been in contact with everybody. And it's possible that some of the people who are most reluctant to come forward uh, are people who have had perhaps experiences of a different type, perhaps slightly more traumatic or or slightly more worrying. Um, One of the witnesses, John, who is one of the very few people who is adamant he saw a being come out of one of the objects at the Grange as he was hiding behind bushes watching. It it took years for him to make contact with me. Um, And still to this day, he's very reluctant to talk about his story. So I'm very conscious that there's probably a lot more out there that I'm not aware of. And I'm very open to hearing those stories as well. Well, the country with the third highest listenership for this podcast is Australia. So hello to all the Australian listeners out there. Um, if you and we only know have 26 anyone, million people. Well, there you go. Yeah, it's, uh, it's about quality, not quantity. It is. It is. Get in touch with Shane. 
uh, and obviously let him know if if you know of or maybe you were one of those students on that day um, to to kind of get that information out there. Shane would be gratefully accepting of you getting in touch with him, I'm sure. And his contact details will be in the description to the podcast too. So make sure you check that for, for those. Um, a question from Newman. You mentioned Victor approached the craft. Um, did Victor or any others report symbols or hieroglyphics or any details on the UFOs or the flying saucers themselves, similar to what we hear from Rendlesham, for example? I know. Wouldn't that be grateful to have some sort of lettering on the craft, be it uh, Egyptian or Sumerian or anything would be fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anything would be great. Um but no, to take that question seriously, I don't mean to make light of it at all. Um, most of the witnesses, almost to a person, talk about there being nothing on the craft that they could see. Mm. Now, most people weren't close enough to perhaps see something like that. But for those who were, they almost to a person describe it as being um, smooth, uh, without any joins or nuts or rivets or indentations or, or anything like that. And, and nothing in terms of labelling or lettering or signage or, or symbols or colours. Uh, no, unfortunately. Um, if there had been, it perhaps it would have changed the whole story. Um, but nothing like, as you say, has been reported by some at Rendlesham or the incident at Socorro or other incidents over the years around the world, no. It's a very human thing to label everything and, and you know, draw on it, map things, label the, the outside of craft that we have in, in some way, shape or form. So it's almost more unsettling, more of non-human property to have something completely unlabeled, as you say, no rivets, no joins, just completely metallic and, and as simple as that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm always open to, to hearing any of those sorts of sorts of details if they're, if they're there. Um, question from Gregory. Gregory asks, um, have you heard of the fantastic book by Preston Dennett, Schoolyard UFO Encounters? It's a compilation of various newspapers' accounts chronicling schoolyard appearances and schoolyard landings of UFOs going well back over 100 years. I was going to mention Preston Dennett. That is the most wonderful book. What an amazing effort he has done compiling more than 100 stories Westall's in there as well, of course, and Preston and I have been in contact with each other over the years, and he keeps nudging me about finally finishing my book that I uh, am trying to write on Westall, um, and uh, he's done an amazing amount of research. And one of the other stories that he has included in, in his book is partly um, because it's the other story that I have taken up as a personal area of research for me. And again, it's another story that's not well known at all, particularly in its home country. And that's the Crestview Elementary School incident, which happened exactly a year to the day, one year after Westall, the 6th of April, 1967, spread over three days, a little bit like Westall was for some people. And it has so many elements that it shares with the Westall story, kids, students, the Air Force being involved the craft flying in and around pine trees, a field, a paddock next to the school. Um, and it's a story that's almost completely unknown. And I've been in touch over the years with many of the kids, now adults, who were there at that school in the suburbs of Miami, by the way, about 20 kilometres north, north uh, west of the Miami CBD. 
and none of those witnesses have been interviewed as adults. It's only my contact with them, mostly by email over the years. And I was very fortunate to be able to convince the Discovery Channel Canada people who made a series called Close Encounters several years ago. And uh, they included both the Westall story and the Crestview story in their episodes. And that has aired on TV in various countries around, around the world. But apart from that, there's been very little focus on that particular incident. And I love it because it has so many common elements with and reverberations from the Westall incident. And the fact that it happened a year to the day afterwards, it makes you wonder if, you know, whatever is behind the UFO phenomena has its sort of finger on a calendar or a diary or, you know, what's going on down here on Earth in terms of time and chronology. It's, it's just crazy. Um, and other great school-based stories I'm very interested in as well. The 1977 Broadhaven County Primary School incident yeah. in Pembrokeshire in Wales, of course, that you would well know about. Obviously, the REL one from 1994 in Zimbabwe. Um, and because of my research, I've come across these other stories that have happened in Australia associated with schools as well. Gregory added to that, do you think it's possible that aliens or non-human intelligences might be less concerned about their own safety, appearing face-to-face -face or in close proximity to children rather than with adults? And is that the reason these things tend to land and appear so close to schools? And of course, that's a really important question. And, you know, is it aliens that's behind UFOs? Is it some sort of non-human intelligence or is it something completely different that we haven't thought of yet, haven't dreamt of yet? Is it us coming back from the future? Um, is it some other planetary species coming back from their future? Um, I like the idea of it being us coming back from our future because that's sort of more hope-filled in a way. It means that, hey, we survive. We actually get out of this mess, this morass that we're in at the moment, and, and we make it. Um, but in terms of the contact with children, you sort of have to wonder, is some sort of message being sowed? Is some sort of consciousness in our society being raised over many years, over decades, through these incidents that have happened over many years and decades, through the lives of children? And as they grow up and become adults and they share the story and, and people like you and me come along and research the stories and and the word goes out, and is that part of what this is all about? It's, is it sort of a, a messaging that's being very gently and in a way deliberately managed? Um, I don't know, of course. I don't know, but we have to think about all these things and, and wonder about it. Um, yeah, I, I don't know, but it's a great thing to, to wonder about, isn't it? And finally, from Melanie, um, she's been fascinated by the US being involved in so many UFO and alien events that have happened outside of its borders. For example, suggestions that the US collected everything from the Virginia case in Brazil. And she wonders, is there any evidence that the US got involved in the Westall event? Those darned Americans. Gosh. <laughs> well, I know. It's something that we worry about. <laughs> it's something I worry about. Um, my good friend, Ross Coulthart who I know you know very well, of course. Um, he's done a lot of great work in this area. And uh, Ross contacted me years ago 
and started talking to me about about Westall. And it turned out that we both had a very important witness that we both knew who shed a very interesting light on the whole Westall case and the fact that the Australian government at the time took a very, very deep interest in what happened at Westall. And this man that we both uh, knew of, who's now deceased, um, but Ross knows his son and I've been in contact with his son, this man was the fourth highest ranking public servant in this huge and very important government department called the Department of Supply, which was charged with providing Australia's Army, Navy and Air Force with everything it needed, munitions and uniforms and weapons and everything. And this man was a very intelligent man and was in charge of that part of the Department of Supply that dealt with aircraft and guided weapons. And he was charged with the responsibility of writing the report into what had happened at Westall, a secret report. And he got picked up several times that week from his home in Melbourne and driven not to his office in the centre of Melbourne, but out to Westall. And he wrote that report. His son saw him write it around the kitchen table. And that report presumably went to government. And possibly he created another copy of that report, which he kept for himself. And he gave instructions to his wife that on his death, those sorts of papers, potentially including that sequel Westall report, go into the incinerator upon his death. And after he died in 1970, very suddenly, that's exactly what happened, apparently. His wife put those papers into the incinerator in the backyard. And I have stood out the front of that house here in Canberra, where that family lived, peered into the backyard and just imagined that day and just wished I could have been there that day in 1970 and stopped those papers going into the incinerator and spoken to that man about what he saw at Westall and what went into that report. And is it the fact that the reason we can't find that report or any other official information about Westall in the Australian government files in the National Archives, is it because those papers have been sent somewhere else? Are they over in Washington or are they in London or are they somewhere here in Canberra as well, but in some deep dark file that no freedom of information application is ever going to touch because of ongoing and enduring national security concerns? But, you know, Australia likes to share things with its friends, especially its five eyes friends especially the US, and sometimes Australia, I think, has been lent on over the years by some of those Five Eyes friends, again, especially probably the US as the senior partner, um, to make sure it hands over that sort of information as the senior partner that's over the years taken the lead, uh, either publicly or not so publicly, in this area of research. And so it wouldn't surprise me at all that there's some information about Westall in another country and maybe somewhere in the US. And maybe the really important solution to what happened at Westall is there and not here. But, you know, as an Aussie living here in Canberra, I really hope there's still something here in Canberra and that one day, whether it's me or someone else, we'll be able to knock on just that right door and unearth it or that somebody who might miraculously still be alive after all these years and still have their wits about them after all these years, who either was involved at Westall that day 
in a, an official capacity, be it military or intelligence, um, or has some link to someone who was, that they'll do the right thing and step forward and talk about what happened 56 years ago. Because surely after all these years, there can be no ongoing commercial inconfidence or national intelligence or, or reputational issues that mean we can't talk about this anymore or, or at all. But if there is something like that, well, doesn't that in a way tell us something about maybe what the Westall incident was all about, that it was something significant, that it was something potentially that was so perplexing, not just to the authorities in 1966, but even 56 years later, that it still has to be kept under wraps. Well, the, the late Harry Reid, Senator Harry Reid, said it's certainly a worldwide phenomena, and this uh, episode hopefully is going to prove that even more so. Thanks to all the listeners on YouTube, Twitter, uh, via email, via DMs who submitted listener questions. Shane, I could have gone an, another hour asking you those, but it's very late where you are. I'd love to get you back on in the new year to go through some of those other cases you mentioned, but also we'll get back to the rest of those listener questions as well. I'd like to thank you for your time you've been very generous obviously rescheduling as well and if you could just let people know how they can follow you how they can also watch the documentary and just get your work in general sure so you can reach me on facebook so the westall incident facebook page is pretty easy to find and also the original documentary that was made for television in australia it has a wonderful website and that's westall 66 ufo.com.au there's a trailer there, a press kit, two study guides, and also a video book with 30 minutes of extra footage not seen in the original documentary that's there as well. Brilliant. All those links will also be in the description for this show. Uh, Shane, have a wonderful festive period. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year when it comes to all of you over in Australia as well. Special thank you to Ross Coulthart for getting us in touch many months ago. It's been great and well worth the wait having you on as well, Shane. Thank you, Andy. Thank you for your kind words and keep up the good fight. We really appreciate it. That is all for this week's show. Thank you very much for listening. Please remember to leave the podcast a review on your chosen platform. You can like, retweet and subscribe. That would all be very much appreciated. The shows are being uploaded onto YouTube as we speak more and more. You can sign up at patreon.com forward slash that UFO podcast to access the shows ad free as well. Please get in touch on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, that UFO podcast. Of course, on Twitter, it's at UFO, U-A-P-A-M. And again, folks, as always, keep looking up. You never know what you might see. It wasn't a tic-tac and not quite a saucer, more like a hubcap designed by Chaucer. A little Baroque and quite steampunk, like Alice was playing bass for the Parliament of The little fucker hovered right outside of my window, and when I shoved out the screen, he made it an issue. I don't think he expected me to see his ass, but I'd had some champagne and smoked a little Meditative game of fateful on meta. I can't imagine how it could have been any better. I got to the top of the stairs and there he was. Like, you awake? I was about to abduct you, cuz. Jump 
back and nearly kissed myself. Then I climbed out the window after the elf. And I woke up in my bed and there was something on my head and everything was weird and everything was red. I helped out my boys. They thought this was noise. They thought it was a dream. They thought it was my toys. They thought it was my problems. And they think I should see therapy. And I don't know what it is because it doesn't really scare me. Consider your space, consider your lies, consider your life, consider your eyes.